Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name is Sarah. And this week, we're going to talk about one of the most reviled men in Tennessee history. In the 1980s, Tennessee historians ranked all of Tennessee's governors from best to worst, and Governor William Ganaway Brownlow was ranked dead last. According to legend, they actually had to take out his portrait from the state capitol because it was covered in tobacco stains. In fact, in 1999, historian Stephen Ash wrote, More than 120 years after his death, merely mentioning his name in the volunteer state can evoke raucous laughter or bitter curses. So, who was this guy anyway? William Brownlow was born in Wythe County, Virginia in 1805, but his parents died when he was just a boy and his siblings were actually split up. So, Brownlow went to live on his uncle's farm, where he learned to farm and the trade of carpentry. But that didn't last very long. In 1825, he went to a revival. It was a Methodist revival meeting, and this seemed like it had a profound impact on him. He had a dramatic spiritual rebirth. Referring to this time, he said, all my anxieties were at an end, all my hopes were realized, my happiness was complete. In 1826, he begins his career as a Methodist minister. In North Carolina, he's actually a circuit rider. A circuit rider was a traveling preacher, and it was especially common in rural areas where churches may not have a full-time minister. But because these areas were very sparsely populated, there was a really heated rivalry between competing Christian denominations, particularly the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians. And of course, Brownlow was a Methodist. And he did not hesitate to get involved in disagreements, debates, publishing pamphlets against these other denominations. In fact, he actually was sued by a Baptist minister for publishing apparently false statements that damaged his reputation. And Brownlow was ordered to pay his accuser five whole dollars. And this seems to be a recurring theme. He turns his attacks into very personal attacks. Mm -hmm. Because of his tendency to make enemies wherever he was, Brownlow was reassigned multiple times. He moved from North Carolina to East Tennessee near Knoxville. And then from Tennessee, he was moved again to South Carolina. But he wasn't there very long. No, he published a particularly venomous anti-Baptist pamphlet and was basically on the verge of being lynched. So fearing for his life, he moves back to Tennessee for good. In 1836, he marries Eliza Ann O'Brien and the two start a family. And this is kind of a side note, but Brownlow's son, James Brownlow, served during the Civil War for the United States. And he was injured in Franklin, Tennessee, not during the Battle of Franklin, but He is treated at the house of Dr. Cliff, who is a prominent Franklin citizen. He recovers and he marries Dr. Cliff's daughter, Isabella, and the two live in Franklin for the rest of their lives. In 1839, William Brownlow started his career as a newspaper man. He begins his own publication called The Whig in Elizabethton, Tennessee. And The Whig was Brownlow's platform to promote his political agenda, but it was also his way of really denouncing everybody that he disagreed with, which was 
pretty much everybody at different times. He went against the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Catholics, the Mormons, Democrats, Republicans, secessionists, drunks, immigrants, and abolitionists all at various times. Because of his extreme views, Brownlow becomes known as the Fighting Parson. His newspaper, The Whig, was extremely influential, particularly in its anti-secessionist message. Brownlow did not like those who wanted to leave the Union which was this secessionist movement. And he used this newspaper to promote those views. And it was very successful. In fact, by 1861, it had about 14,000 subscribers. And the first and foremost important thing Brownlow advocated for in the newspaper was the Constitution and the Union. In fact, many historians attribute Brownlow's newspaper to why East Tennessee developed strong anti-secession sympathies. When Tennessee secedes from the Union, East Tennessee actually remains strongly for the Union and tried to secede from Tennessee. As influential as the Whig was, that doesn't mean Brownlow did not develop a few enemies. In 1849, Brownlow, you know, was just walking down the street and an unknown assailant bashed him on the back of the head with a club. Now, he, he survives, of course, but he's bedridden for about two weeks. From a modern perspective, many of Brownlow's views are difficult to comprehend. And I think that's most evident in his views on slavery and how those views seem to evolve over the course of his life. Before the Civil War, Brownlow was pro-slavery. He takes a stance that because slavery is not condemned in the Bible and the fact that it's legal in the Constitution, you can't argue against it. In fact, part of the reasons why he does not like abolitionists before the war is because he says they're advocating against something that's against the Constitution. I think it's important to note how slavery, like any other issue, not everybody was just for it or against it. You had a lot of people who fit somewhere in between. There were certain people who did not own slaves but respected other people's right to do so. You had people who did not like slavery but recognized that it was constitutional. And then you had other people who were so opposed to it that they didn't care if it was constitutional or not. They thought it should be abolished or ended no matter what. This debate grew so intense, of course, that by November of 1860, when we elect Abraham Lincoln, under a position of not allowing slavery to expand from where it currently exists, seven states secede from the Union or decide to leave because they felt like their right to own slaves was being threatened. Four more states followed. Tennessee was the last, and it became the 11th and final state to secede from the Union in June of 1861. Remember, Brownlow has been anti-secession from the start. So I love this quote in response to South Carolina leaving the Union. He says, I am sorry to hear you say that the Methodists of South Carolina are now and forever the advocates of secession. You leave the vessel, the Union, you may go out in the rickety boats of your little state and hoist your miserable cabbage leaf of a palmetto flag, but depend on it, men and brethren. You will be dashed on the rocks. And I can say that because, you know, I was born in South Carolina. There you go. Because he continues to promote anti-secessionist viewpoints in his newspaper, after Tennessee has already seceded from the Union, he ends up having to go into hiding. And he escapes into the Smoky Mountains where he hides out for a time. Eventually, he was arrested by Confederate authorities 
under charges of treason and was jailed for a time. And he witnessed the trials of other inmates. But he's released and escorted to Nashville in March of 1862, shortly after Nashville was captured by U.S. troops. For the next year, Brownlow toured the North, speaking and running on the evils of secession, makes quite a bit of money doing so. In many ways, he becomes kind of this folk hero in the North, this Southern man who stays with the Union. A novel was published about him called Parson Brownlow and the Unionists of East Tennessee, and there was even a musical score composed in his honor called Parson Brownlow's Quick Step. Brownlow begins to align more with the Republican Party. He eventually leaves the Whig Party for the Republicans. And it's good to note he does not leave the Whig Party for the Democrats. That would be a huge betrayal for him. At one point in time, though, he is asked whether he has joined the Democratic Party. And his response is quite scathing. He says, when the sun shines at midnight and the moon at midday, when man forgets to be selfish or Democrats lose their inclination to steal, when nature stops her onward march to rest or all the watercourses in America flow upstream, when flowers lose their odor, when damned spirits swap hell for heaven with the angels of light and pay them the boot and mean whiskey, ne'er will I join the Democrats as long as wars with nations, water in the oceans, bad women in America, or base women in France. <laughs> Needless to say, when Brownhoe resumes the publication of the wig for the first time since he has come back from hiding, in early 1863, it is very pro-Republican and pro-Abraham Lincoln. And in November of 1864, Abraham Lincoln was re-elected, but he had switched vice presidents. He had picked Andrew Johnson from East Tennessee, who prior to this was military governor of Tennessee. Which I think everyone should note here that when he becomes vice president, Andrew Johnson is technically not from a state that's part of the Union. Tennessee's still technically in rebellion. This is around the time when Brownlow switches from just being a newspaper publisher into the political arena himself. And William Ganaway Brownlow, the fighting parson, was nominated for governorship. In March of 1865, he received, in what can only be called, a landslide vote, 23,352 votes to only 35 votes against him. Now, this was mostly due to the fact that before Johnson left, he had made it nearly impossible for ex-Confederates to vote. And most people who could vote lived in East Tennessee. So they voted for Brownlow. So shortly after becoming governor, Brownlow moves towards the more radical side of the Republican Party. And one of the ways he does this is by being adamantly opposed to allowing ex-Confederates the right to vote. In fact, he not only says that ex-Confederates shouldn't vote, the only people that could vote were those whose loyalty was never in question to the Union. When Brownlow is elected governor, it's right at the end of the Civil War. And one of the things he does is he leads Tennessee through the Reconstruction era, this era after the Civil War where we as a nation try to figure out how we're going to heal and put ourselves back together. Three amendments to the Constitution are passed during the Reconstruction era, 13, 14, and 15. And Brownlow had a hand in all of them. And these three amendments, in order, abolish slavery, 
made anyone born or naturalized in the United States into a citizen and gave the right to vote to all male citizens. These are the tangible accomplishments of the Civil War. One of the first things Brownlow does after being elected is to introduce the 13th Amendment to the Tennessee State Legislature, which is quickly ratified. Around the same time, both houses of Congress are passing the 14th Amendment in June of 1866, which they submit to the states for ratification, but they also require that former Confederate states had to ratify the amendment in order to be admitted back into the Union. This was a controversial move and has been the subject of debate ever since. Tennessee, though, was the exception. And it's good to note here that Brownlow and Andrew Johnson, both boys from Tennessee who had experienced a friendship up until this point, began to have that friendship crack because they disagreed over the 14th Amendment. Brownlow was for the 14th Amendment. Andrew Johnson was against it. Brownlow submitted the 14th Amendment to the Tennessee State Legislature for ratification, but certain members of the State House who were opposed to the amendment attempted to flee in order to prevent a quorum which is the minimum number of representatives required to make a decision. Brownlow wasn't a fan of this, and he had two members of the House who had tried to escape arrested, and he confined them to the House committee room, and he counted them as present for the vote. The amendment was then passed 43 to 11, and Tennessee was readmitted into the Union. Shortly after the 14th Amendment passed, Brownlow sticks it to Andrew Johnson, by sending a telegraph to Congressman John Bingham, stating, Battle fought and won. The amendment was ratified in the House today by 43 to 11. Give my compliments to the dirty dog in the White House. As for the 15th Amendment, Tennessee became one of the first states to legalize African-American suffrage in 1867, three years before the 15th Amendment was ratified. Also in the Reconstruction Era, Brownlow uses military force to control the KKK. This is one of the major reasons he was voted the worst governor in Tennessee history. Brownlow was re-elected as governor of Tennessee once more, but he didn't run for a third term. Instead, he becomes a state senator in 1867. And it's about this time that he was weakened by a nervous disease and his political career begins to drop off. Eventually, on April 28th, 1877, he dies from paralysis of the bowels in his home, and he's buried in Knoxville, Tennessee. That concludes our discussion of the life of Governor Brownlow, and we wanted to end by asking you the question, do you believe that Governor Brownlow was the worst governor in Tennessee history? If you have a response, send us an email. My email address is brad at boft.org. And mine is sarah, with an H, at boft.org too. And we've got a special offer for podcast listeners. If you head to our online store at store.boft.org and use the code PODCAST18, that's all lowercase, PODCAST18 at checkout, you can receive 10% off of your order. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.